Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 142 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We just finished recording with Jung Yun. Oh, my gracious. Such an amazing woman and writer. And we just cannot wait to share this interview with you all. And for you to go out and pick up a copy of her new novel, Oh, Beautiful. It's coming out November 9th, the day that this episode drops. So join us in celebrating this novel by reading it. Yes, feel free to pause right now as you listen and go order it or run to your local bookstore. (laughs) (laughs) We have some news to share. First of all, the winner of episode 140's giveaway was Susie in Maryland, also known as number 411. (laughs) That's where she appears on our newsletter subscriber list. So thank you, Susie, for being a newsletter subscriber and a listener of the podcast and enjoy your four books. Yes, thank you so much. And congratulations. And we want to thank three new Patreon sponsors who've joined us since the last episode. We'd love to thank Margaret, Linda, and Melinda. Thank you so much. Our Patreon sponsors really help us keep the lights on and the recording going. We're going to try something new this time around where we have a giveaway that we're only offering to Patreon sponsors. We're going to choose the giveaway winner on November 14th. So if you aren't a current Patreon sponsor and you want to become one, you have some time. You can go to bookcougars.com and find out how to become a Patreon sponsor. The book is A Rebellious Woman by Claire Griffin. She was our first in-person biblio adventure that we were able to do together when pandemic restrictions started lifting up a little bit. And that was on episode 135, if you'd like to revisit that. Claire listened to the episode and she saw us posting on social media and she was gracious enough to send us a copy of the book. So we would love to share that with you all. To become a Patreon sponsor, we just want to let everybody know you can do it at a dollar level, five, ten. 15, 25, whatever dollar amount you're comfortable with, you can start it, you can stop it whenever you need to. We know that financial situations change. So it's super easy to start becoming a Patreon sponsor. And then it's super easy to stop too, if you ever need to. Absolutely. Again, if you want to be part of the giveaway, join prior to November 14th. The other way you can help us that has no financial requirements at all is just to tell friends so that they can find us and we get more listeners, which makes everybody happy. We love to grow our community and sharing our posts on social media is a great way to do it. Another thing too is, and we've talked about this in the past a little bit, is if you have a friend or family member who doesn't listen to podcasts yet, talk with them about it. And they might just not know how to access podcasts. If they have a smartphone, we all know there are tons of different apps you can use A lot of our listeners stream directly from a desktop or laptop computer. So that's also an option, too. They don't have to have a smartphone. They can just go to bookcougars.com, and all of our episodes are there. Another thing we found out recently is that on iTunes, they only have 100 episodes up at a time. So now that we're over the 100-episode mark, if you do want to listen to older episodes, you do need to go to our website to do that. Yeah, all of the episodes are listed there. You have to do a little scrolling or nexting on arrows, but you can get to them. And we think that this is just the way that most of the podcast browsers are, but we're doing a little research on that, more to come. Yeah, one of the things we found is that a lot of 
apps limit it to 100 episodes. So I think it's one of those data control things that they do for listeners. But again, if you want to start at episode one or go back in time to look up anything, we have a search feature on the Book Cougars website also. And then you can listen to those episodes directly from the desktop or iPad or whatever. (laughs) So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading an awesome book that I picked up at a recent visit to Mystic Seaport Museum in Mystic, Connecticut. It is called 50 Ships That Changed the Course of History, A Nautical History of the World. It's by Ian Graham. I am loving this book. It's kind of like a gift book. It's very well-made and it has a little ribbon in it so you can keep your place. I've been bouncing around through it and each ship has a couple pages, a lot of great visuals. I'm showing Emily all of these great visuals. Ships from all over the world, different time periods. It would make a great gift book. I know we're going to talk about books for the holidays in an upcoming episode, but this would be one. If you have someone in your life or perhaps yourself, if you're really into ships and history, this would make a great gift. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. It's really neat and surprising. A lot of the ships are military or commercial. There is one called the Spray, which was a gaff rig sloop, later re-rigged as a yawl. And this was the first ship to sail around the world alone, which is one sailor on it. It was a guy named Joshua Slocum. His dates were 1844 to 1909. You know, it shows a picture of the ship, really cool. And it shows his route. And then what is really cool, as a lot of history books do, they have little text boxes with additional information. So he took three years to sail around the world. Three years. Can you imagine sailing around the world? I mean, granted, he stopped at places and talked with people, but that's a lot of alone time (laughs) in a big, dark sea at a time when there wasn't electricity, like you didn't have the luxury of like solar lights or anything like that. Then a guy named Francis Chichester, who wanted to follow a different route and get around the world faster. This was in 1966 in his ship called Gypsy Moth 4. He made that journey around the world in 274 days. Mm. And actually, that was 226 sailing days. And then there are not a lot of women in this book, but there is a woman mentioned, the British yachtswoman, Ellen MacArthur, who made a record-breaking solo nonstop circumnavigation of the world in only 71 days and 14 hours. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that something? And that was in 2005, much more recent, better crafted boats, sleeker boats, sleeker materials and all that kind of stuff. GPS. (laughs) Right? Locks and things like that, right? Right. So I looked her up and I thought, who is this woman? She is now Dame Ellen MacArthur. She's retired from yachting, from racing anyway. And she actually has started a foundation that is all about promoting a new circular economy. And so looking at her website made me think about you, Emily, and your interest and work in philanthropy. Granted, this is about economics and everything, but it seems like some of the businesses that are mentioned as good examples are B Corp type Mm -hmm. businesses. So I thought I'd put that out there as well. Oh, cool. So I thought, oh, yeah, just give one sentence to a woman, right? Now, this book came out in 2016. And looking at Ellen's accomplishment, I found out... She did that in 2005, set the record. Then there was a man from France, Francis Yo, Yo. There was a man from France. 
Francis Joyon is how you'd pronounce the name. He held the record before MacArthur, and then he regained it again in 2008. So I thought it was interesting that the author of the book didn't choose to mention him. Mm -hmm. And he's not in the index at all. Hmm. So I thought, okay, so you give just a sentence to a woman, but you give her that sentence, even though she doesn't hold the record, even knowing that since the publication of this book. So again, that's 50 Ships That Changed the Course of History by Ian Graham. Sounds really good. I'm listening to State of Terror by Hillary Rodham Clinton and Louise Penny. Oh, the narrator is the actress Joan Allen, which I thought was cool. Totally. Oh, my gosh. This one has me on the edge of my seat. It's really good. The main character is the Secretary of State. So, of course, as I'm imagining it, it's Hillary Rodham Clinton, right? (laughs) Right. There's been a bombing on a bus that her son happens to be on. And I'm only just about 10% in, but it definitely has me on the edge of my seat. There's different characters. I would like to get my hands on the book itself just to kind of see the setup of how the chapters are you know, set up and maybe just read it a little bit too. I like to do that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting to read this, but Chris and I were on a joint jaunt, which we will talk about moving forward here. And I got my hands on it very quickly. Now I wish I had flipped through it more. All I did was go directly to the acknowledgments and read Louise Penny's acknowledgments and Hillary Rodham Clinton's acknowledgments, which I really enjoyed. And they gave you a little backstory into how they came to write this book together and things like that. So if you're looking for a page turner, well-written, little bit of humor, I recommend it so far. State of Terror. Very cool. I've been hearing good things and mm-hmm. that a lot of people who know what they're talking about are saying it's an excellent thriller. Mm-hmm. They're definitely making nods to the past administration that they've come into office after that was kind of a train wreck and let things go to hell. It's definitely of the moment, I would say. Very cool. And I liked how you told me the story about how they had Bill Clinton read certain things. Oh, right. In the acknowledgments, they talk about how they had Bill Clinton read the manuscript and at certain points would say, you know, a president wouldn't really do this. And how could you not make a change if an, a president <laughs> says that to you? So right. that was cute. A two-termer. Right. It's definitely <laughs> been vetted. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that you're listening to that. I can't wait to hear next episode how it goes. Well, the other book I'm reading is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. This is the book that was written in 1764 that I talked about being my upcoming read because it was a book club book. Well, I have a little saga about this one. I had ordered it from our local bookstore. And books usually come in in about a week and two weeks had passed. So I thought, well, I'll call them and see what's going on. I talked to a bookseller and she said, huh, you didn't pick it up? I said, no, I I didn't. I didn't get a call or anything. Well, we'll look into this and call you back. Okay. (laughs) So later I get a voicemail from one of the owners. They're great guys who own the bookstore. I'm really sorry, Chris. It came in and somebody bought it. (laughs) I don't know what happened. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't marked as a special order. I'm really surprised somebody bought it. It's not like it's a hot seller. Again, book from 1764, right? Maybe it was one of your book club people. No big deal. They ordered me a copy, but it didn't come in in time enough for me to drop my schoolwork to get it read for book club. It was one of those book clubs where we met outside in the backyard with the fire and we're making s'mores and everything. We probably talked about the book for maybe all of three sentences. <laughs> so you you did just fine. I did fine. I mean, I will finish it. 
one of the conversations we had about it is how Walpole, he considered himself a serious scholar. And this was something that he published anonymously at first and not something he would have considered valuable or part of his work per se. One of the book club members is like, and this is the only thing he's known for today. It reads almost like it's a farce of a gothic novel. But again, this is considered the first gothic novel. So it's setting up a lot of the tropes that become popular within the gothic genre. And so it's really hard to put your mind in a position where you're trying to forget everything you know about gothic novels and thrillers and that type of writing and read this without laughing at how silly some things seem. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. I'll say that. Another thing about Walpole that I had written down, which I guess I didn't really realize until I looked into him a bit, is that he was a member of parliament. And Yale actually published his letters in 48 volumes because they have significant social and political value. Wow. That's a 48 volumes. That's a commitment for a publisher to take on. You can also, if you're interested, Google his home, Strawberry Hill House, which he had done in the Gothic Revival style and which has in recent years had a renovation. Oh, cool. Yeah. So again, that's The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Emily, what have you just read? Oh, my. I have been on a reading tear. So get ready. Hold on to your seats. The one I just finished last night with lots of tears in my eyes Mm. was Woodrow on the Bench, Life Lessons from a Wise Old Dog by Jenna Blum. This book comes out on November 9th, the day this podcast drops. Oh, this is about Jenna's last seven months with her dog, Woodrow who's known as the George Clooney of dogs. (laughs) There's something she calls the Woodrow effect, which is in his later years, they spent a lot of time on a bench across the street from her apartment in the Back Bay neighborhood of Boston. And people just flocked to him. He just had a personality, even once he was sleeping most of the time and things like that. So the book is a memoir. It's an exploration of how you decide as a human owner of a dog when your dog's quality of life is starting to slip. And Jenna is obviously so devoted and so in love with her dog, and it really comes through the pages. The other part of the story is interweaving her own love life and the choices that she made to become a full-time writer and how that affects her love life. Mm -hmm. I'm not a dog owner, but one of the things that I've heard from my brothers and other people who own dogs is they are the constant companion in your life. And depending on when you have this dog, you may see lots of friendships or lovers come in and out of your life, but every day you still have this dog companion. And that's who Woodrow is for Jenna. Her writing is beautiful. I cried, but I will say it's still a really happy book, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid okay. to to read it. Suzanne reached out on our social media and she said, oh, this book's going to make me cry, isn't it? Don't worry, Suzanne. It will, but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Dog love is always worth it. Yes. And we're going to have Jenna on in a future episode. So yeah. we'll be talking more about this book. Really looking forward to it. To talking with her and to reading the book. Yeah, I'm going to hand it off to you next. Thank you. What about you? Well, I did finish A Blizzard of Polar Bears by Alice Henderson. Loved it. 
so I read much. it too. Awesome. Yeah. You know what? I had that thing that happens where it's just like, oh my God, I can't wait to finish it and I don't want to finish it. Yes. Like I had maybe, I don't know, 20 pages left and I found myself getting up and doing stuff like cleaning and everything because <laughs> I don't want to end. But I did. I finished it. And it starts where A Solitude of Wolverines leaves off. At the very beginning, Alex Carter, the wildlife biologist who's the badass protagonist of the Alex Carter series is in Montana wrapping up her Wolverine study. She doesn't know what's happening next. She gets a call from an old graduate school friend who finally got approval to proceed with this polar bear study up in Canada, but she can't drop the current study that she's on, but she wants to get this polar bear study going ASAP. So Alex takes it. She's like, perfect. Like, I didn't know what I was going to be doing next. Fantastic. So she heads up to Churchill, Manitoba, Canada, which is the polar bear capital of the world. There's a big research center there in town. She has a graduate student who's going to be helping her. They have a pilot on call to take them looking for polar bears to tag and to collect information, data on them, to look at their health and environmental factors. And it just takes off from there. It is a survival story. It is. It's true. And this one's a little bit different because there's lots of snowmobiles and bad people. And ships, too. (laughs) And ships. I was excited about that. Some boat action out there in the ice. One thing that was different about this book, I think, than A Solitude of Wolverines, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a prologue in this book that sets the stage where there's something going on that you really don't understand. Yeah, it's one of those mystery thriller ways that grab you in. It's a character who's not related to Alex Carter's life or situation, who's an archaeologist who's diving on a shipwreck. And when he comes up, things happen. That's the very beginning. It does tie in to a lot of things later on in the book, but the action does start with that prologue yeah that sets up things (laughs) yep when this episode airs a blizzard of polar bears will be out so you have two books in the alex carter series now to dive into i am so in love with this series and i'm going to read some of her backlist yeah yeah because i just really enjoy her writing it seems so effortless and so action oriented that it just carries you along in the story Right. And if you've had a chance to listen to our interview with her on episode 141, she talks about how writing the action scenes is her favorite part and comes the most easily to her. And you can feel that as you're reading it. Yeah, absolutely. So again, that's A Blizzard of Polar Bears by Alice Henderson. I read the book Doctors and Friends by Kimmery Martin. This too is publishing on November 9th. (laughs) November 9th is a big pub date. This is one of those books when I started it, I asked myself that question too soon. You know, like when something happens and then someone tries to make a joke about it and they say too soon or something like that. This book is all about a global pandemic. Mm. So when I first started reading it, I was like, "Ah, I don't know about this. But I read the acknowledgments and she did start writing this book prior to COVID-19. And she's now a writer full time, but she was an emergency room doctor. So it's written from the perspective of someone who really knows what they're talking about. And the premise is that these friends who met in med school are on a trip, they get together once a year, because they all live in different parts of the country. There's been a release of information to one of the main characters that someone died unexpectedly on a ship. 
it seems to be from a virus that they've never seen before. Hmm. This particular character works for the CDC, and she's part of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, otherwise known as the EIS, which is a real thing. Really? Wow. Yes. One of the things the author does that I really like is she has really cute chapter titles. So when she introduces the concept of the EIS, the title of that chapter is The Nerd Version of the Green Berets, (laughs) which I thought was really good. It's about this global pandemic and an outbreak. It really is. There are some similarities to COVID-19 and some dissimilarities. So it feels familiar on a lot of levels. So for some people, I think that's going to work. For some, maybe it won't. I remember when you and I read Emma Donahue's The Pull of the Stars, which takes place during the Spanish flu. It almost felt good to read it because you felt they've survived this. Mm -hmm. You know, we will too survive what we're going through. Right. Yeah. Um, You really understand things a bit more too. Like you're really there in a different way. Yeah. And there were things that she had in this book that I was like, oh, that'd actually be really cool. And one of them was a technology where your cell phone would alert you if you came close to someone who was non-immune. Well, there is a thing where I get alerts if I've been around somebody who's tested positive, but this is a different thing. Yeah. Somebody who is not immune. Yeah. Interesting. Because that's one of the questions, too, is that people can develop immunities in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's really nice. I like that. That's taking care of people who are vulnerable. Right. Which is so important and one of the struggles we currently have in our country. Yes. Another thing she did in the book that I liked was that there was a female president. She says in her acknowledgments that she wrote it before COVID, edits were during COVID, but that she contracted COVID. So that really influenced her writing of the novel as well. I wanted to read one little part of the acknowledgments that I thought was very funny. I have talked about how I am a huge acknowledgments reader. She has pages and pages of acknowledgments. She has them titled, My People, the Emergency Medicine Doctors, All Hail the Infectious Disease Doctors, Immunologists, Biologists, and EIS Trained Docs, and then colon, a list of them, the neurologists, colon, a list of them, all sorts of people. And then towards the end, she gets more personal to my writing group, to my med school babes. And then, and finally, to COVID. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just cracked up when I read that. I was like, because I read them first. And then I was like, okay, I'm in good hands here. I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Doctors and Friends by Kimmery Martin. Out now. I did read the vampire novel that John Valeri recommended to me on episode 140. Not exactly quarterly that we have him on, but John's been on a bunch of episodes and he always has great recommendations. I usually end up reading at least one. And this one, of course, I had to read because I asked him for a vampire recommendation and the man delivered. So thanks, John. This is The Vampires of Hollywood. It is by Adrian Barbeau and Michael Scott. It's set in Hollywood. Vampires of Hollywood is exactly what this book is. John talked about it a lot already on the earlier episode, so I don't want to go into too much detail other than to agree with him that this has some great humor, wonderful sarcasm, lots of violence and gore. I appreciated that it's insider information about what it's like to be an actor in Hollywood, the awfulness of people, but then also 
the loveliness of Hollywood and movies at the same time. So I think it's a good balance of that. I wanted to read a couple sections, if you don't mind. This book came out in July 2008. Social media really didn't take off until like 2006. That's when Facebook and Twitter went global and really became more of a daily part of everyone's life. Imagine this. This is pre-social media anyway that she's saying this. Asvana is the vampire who is the protagonist of the novel. She's a 500-year-old vampire. Vampires move and travel to protect their secret. It was easier when I was younger. A century ago, I could stay in one place for a number of years, and then, before suspicions arose, I would take my leave or arrange for my death and burial and transport myself to a distant country where no one would question my appearance. Now, with jet planes and ocean liners and automobiles and news broadcasts, it's impossible to get away from people you know. Twice this century, I've had to resort to, quote, dying and returning as my, quote, daughter. Fortunately, L.A. Today is so obsessed with staying attractive, no one questions how I manage to age so well. They just chalk it up to surgery and injections and nonstop Pilates. <laughs> Little do they know, it's nearly 500 years of sucking blood. <laughs> but living in Hollywood in the 21st century has allowed me to remain Asvana Moore a lot longer than I lived as her mother and grandmother. If Gloria Vanderbilt can look as good as she does at her age, I've got another 20 years before anyone gets suspicious. And by then, who knows what technology will have achieved. So, (laughs) I mean, I thought that was kind of a funny commentary on Hollywood and our society now, where the focus is on women staying young looking and beautiful. She can get away with being an actor who's had a career for so long while still looking, quote, young or good or whatever word you want to use. I got a kick out of that. One of the tropes in vampire novels is there's always a lot of name dropping of people in history because it's a thing, you know, vampires live for a long time. So you have them meeting famous people in history and it's kind of fun what they do with some of the different players. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there are characters in this book who are dead actors. I'll just say that. Okay. There are also a lot of people from different industries, different creative outlets and whatnot. I wanted to share this other paragraph with you all. So she has a lot of works by Vincent Van Gogh. We were never lovers. Ours was a friendship that went deeper than that. I owe more of his work than any other artist. I still miss him. When we left Paris for RLs together, I started the process of turning him. But he grew terrified that becoming vampire would destroy his talent. He refused to allow me to complete his creation. To this day, I am convinced that his subsequent half-human, half-vampire existence, what is called the vampire stage, is what drove him mad. The evidence of his emerging vampire senses is there on the canvas. The brilliant colors, the swirling energy, the sheer exuberance of life. To look at his work is to see the world through vampire eyes. Mm. I just love that. I got a kick yeah. out of that because, you know, usually it's just name dropping, but right. that is actually showing how somebody in history could have been affected and how now we could be seeing their work with a different interpretation if you believe in vampires. Right. <laughs> I love the book. I really, really enjoyed it. And this is a bit spoilery, 
but the ending disappointed me a bit. Oh, no. Because all along, there's this great lesbian love story. Osvana and her assistant are lovers. You get their backstory. You get the sense that their love is growing stronger as they're in peril with this murderer who's out killing people Osvana knows. And then at the very end, the last friggin' page, something happens that makes it seem like this could turn into a heterosexual love story. Yeah. So I was a little bit like, oh, exactly. Emily's making this scrunched face, which is exactly what I was looking like when I finished that book. So I don't know how it's going to end. For coming out in 2008, I thought it treated the lesbian relationship really well, really great, believable. The story is told in alternating chapters between the vampire and the Beverly Hills detective who's investigating the murders. Her chapters were the more vibrant ones, and his, he's not exactly that down on his luck kind of detective that you get a lot. He's good looking, he's good at his job, and there were some technical things that are just not really believable that in such high profile murders, he would be the sole detective. I mean, there's talk about him getting a team together, but that doesn't really happen. It's a fast paced book. I enjoyed it, John. You did a great job recommending it. I highly recommend it, but I did have to put in that little thing that it was a bit disappointing. In book two, I read the description on Goodreads, and apparently the lover is still fighting for her affections, even though she is now involved with a dude. So maybe it was just done at the end as a teaser to get you interested in reading the second book. You know, it could be. I doubt it, though, just from my experience with how lesbianism is treated in fiction. Mm -hmm. You think back to like Carmilla where the whole lesbian aspect was a tantalizing taboo type thing that was presented as partially disgusting. You don't get that in this book at all, The Vampires of Hollywood, but it's really rare to have a very happy ending in a mm -hmm. lesbian story unless it's actually lesbian fiction or a lesbian romance. Right. Quite often, they're just setups or they're pawns. Yeah. I didn't get that sense at all in this book. It seemed very genuine. One of the things people talk about in the queer community is that, you know, if you want to have LGBTQ characters represented, you have to accept all kinds of things. People who are bisexual or however they identify could have a lover who is the opposite gender or the same gender back and forth. But there just comes a time when you have to look at the time period out of which a piece of writing right. is coming. Yeah. I've probably spent too much time talking about that aspect of it, but I just needed to mention it as kind of a sticking point for me. And it's what made me give the book four stars instead of five. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you think you'll read the next book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Oh, I will for it. sure. Because uh, there's three of them, I think, all okay. told. Then we'll see what you think about that storyline once you get into book two. Yeah, Report I mean, it's, back. it's just one of those things that always gives me pause. And I have to sure. think about all the different angles of thoughts that I'm having and whatnot. Yeah. So. And I would like to say, just because I put this book in the show notes, it's vampires spelled with a Y. So it's V-A-M-P-Y-R-E-S, if you're looking for it. Or yeah. just check out our show notes for the link. I read a book called Love and Saffron. It's not out until February 8th of 22. I'm sorry. I do want to say that I loved this book with all my heart. I loved it so much that I keep a book journal and I wrote about it twice. <laughs> 
<laughs> because one whole page I filled as I was reading the book, which I thought was hilarious. I don't usually do that. And then the next page, I was like, okay, get some thoughts in order for when you have to talk about this on the podcast. For any of you who have read 84 Charing Cross Road, it's very similar to that book. It's little, it's epistolary, which means it's told only through letters, which I love. I'm a huge fan of that. And it's about food. That's the name, Love and Saffron. The full name is Love and Saffron, a novel of friendship, food, and love by Kim Fay. The premise is there are two women who are writing letters back and forth to each other. One of them is Miss Joan Bergstrom from Los Angeles, California. The book starts by her writing a fan letter to Mrs. Imogen Fortier, otherwise known as Emmy, who lives in Lake Forest Park, Washington. And she writes a column in a magazine called Letter from the Island. She spends time on Kamano Island in Washington. The book takes place in the early 60s. So that gives you a little timestamp. That's when it starts anyway. I learned a few things that surprised me, one of which was Pike's Place Market, which is in Seattle, which is this really cool indoor-outdoor market. If you've ever been to downtown Seattle, you've had the chance to go, I hope. It was threatened to close in 1964. I didn't know that, that that was the history of it. It reminded me a little bit of when you read Fiona Davis's books, we always learn some little interesting piece of history about a building. The premise is that Joan is young and Imogen is older. I think Joan is in her early 20s and Imogen is in her 40s, or I want to say, or 50s. And they start writing letters back and forth to each other because, as I said, Joan starts out by sending a fan letter with a little packet of saffron also. Joan lives in L.A. and she has access to interesting food and she sends the saffron to Imogen to introduce her to saffron and cooking with saffron. What ends up happening is they develop a pen pal relationship. They write back and forth to each other for years and years and years. And then there's a point in the story where they actually get the chance to meet, which is really sweet. And it just helps them develop their friendship even more. But I just thought I would read this one little piece where they talk about why they like writing letters to each other. When you were just talking about vampires of Hollywood and placing us in time with social media and technology, think about this is back in the 60s before there were even cell phones. And she says, personally, I don't enjoy the phone. It feels impersonal to me, which might sound strange since a voice in one's ear is a cozy thing. But when I'm on the line, I can mend or play solitaire. While with a letter, I must pay close attention There is unequaled satisfaction in composing words on a blank page, sealing them in an envelope, writing an address in my own messy hand, adding a stamp, walking it to the mailbox, and raising the flag. It's like preparing a gift, and I feel like I receive one when a letter arrives, yours most of all. It's beautiful. Isn't that sweet? And, And the whole book is like that. It's true. I mean, I try to write letters and I actually have a friend now who I'm spending a lot of time writing letters back and forth. And it's really a lovely way. And when I read that, I was like, that is really true. You can't be distracted. When I talk on the phone, I'm doing dishes, I'm folding laundry, all sorts of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very sweet, lovely little book. I'll try to remind people of it when it comes out. Of course, you can pre-order it now. 
Love and Saffron, a novel of friendship, food, and love by Kim Fay. Sounds wonderful. And then I've also been on a Lori Colwyn tear. Lori Colwyn's having a renaissance. There was just a big article about her in The New Yorker. I think The Times did a piece about her recently, maybe in the magazine. She was someone who was a writer a while back, a long time ago. She used to write essays in Gourmet Magazine, and then she wrote five novels, three short story collections, and two volumes of essays with recipes. She died in 1992 at the age of 48. Such a loss. I've read two of her books in the last couple of weeks. And you've talked about her in the past, too. I have talked about her because home cooking, A Writer in the Kitchen, is the one I've talked about in the past. This is her book of essays and recipes. I've just been savoring it, pun intended. (laughs) Our friend Emily lent me her mother's copy of this book. Wow. It is so sweet. It's stained. There was one page I got to where there was like some version of food still (laughs) stuck to it. And then on the back, in her mother's handwriting, she has all of the recipes written out, like the page number. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really sweet. And Emily and her mother, her mother's passed away now. They were very close. And she said her mother was an incredible host. And loved Lori Coleman. Here's the page. See oh, the yeah. page? There's like, I don't know what that is, but it's a, it's got a recipe for potato salad on this page. So maybe it's little bits of potatoes. <laughs> but Lori Coleman's not fussy. And she's a really funny writer, too. And I thought I would just, since Thanksgiving's coming up, I thought I would read this one little part. The title of this chapter or essay is Stuffing a Confession. <laughs> It was years before I could come out and say how much I hated stuffing. Everyone in the world but me was fired by an elemental urge to fill up bird cavities with this and that. At Thanksgiving time, friends would proudly confide their stuffing recipes, many of which I found personally nauseating. Dried bread, prunes, oysters, and water chestnuts, for example. (laughs) Prunes and oysters? If such a dish were set before you at a restaurant, you would flee in horror and dismay. But when it comes to stuffing, anything goes. People get to make up disgusting combinations and then stuff their poor turkeys with them. Holiday after holiday, I would push my portion around on my plate. After all, you cannot say to those near and dear to you, I think your stuffing tastes like sawdust flavored with sage and it has the consistency of lumpy library paste. (laughs) Everyone else loved it. It was clear that I was in opposition to a national tradition, but I did not realize how emotionally charged an issue stuffing was until I decided to make Thanksgiving dinner on my own for the first time. After years at my parents and sisters, I felt it was my turn to do things my way. What are you going to give us? My sister wanted to know. Baked Brussels sprouts, chestnuts and onions, green salad, ginger cake, and unstuffed turkey. A what? I don't like stuffing, I said. I never have. This is my big chance not to have any. But there's no point to turkey without stuffing, she said. But that is the point. I love turkey, and I do not see it as a mere vehicle for the stuffing. This way, the turkey will be prominent. I don't know if I can get the kids to come, she said, (laughs) referring to my four stuffing-mad nieces. When Thanksgiving came, everyone liked the turkey, but they all seemed a little downcast. Something was missing. The stuffing. An unstuffed turkey is more elegant, I said, but no one seemed to care. 
the essay goes on from there where she finally does develop a stuffing recipe that she likes. But that just gives you some insight into her writing style. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, she's hilarious. She's no nonsense. Her recipes are really not stuffy. I loved it. Home Cooking, A Writer in the Kitchen by Lori Colwin. It was originally published in 1988. Like I said, her books are all having a renaissance. I also decided to try my hand at one of her novels. So I read Happy All the Time. This came out in 1978. And it's about Guido Morris and Vincent Cardworthy, who are third cousins, and their love life and their life in New York City. It's a comedy of manners and morals. And her character descriptions are so good. You know how I struggle with characters and names and all that? I learned by reading her book that the way that she introduces characters helped me remember them. So here's an example. Betty Helen Carnhoops was like a reef of calm in a bad storm. She functioned as smoothly as a hospital kitchen, and she had the quiet, militant presence of a nurse. Her letters were miracles of perfection. She justified each line like a veritite machine. Her telephone voice was brisk and without any tone at all. She almost never spoke to Guido except in the line of work, and her only topics of conversation were the weather, the office cleaning staff, and Guido's appointment calendar. This is his assistant. That's like two sentences and paints a perfect picture of her, right? Yeah. She would often start a chapter by introducing a character and giving you the insight into who they were. I loved this book. I laughed out loud so many times reading it. Again, Happy All the Time by Lori Colwyn. And I'm going to keep participating in the Lori Colwyn renaissance because I'm enjoying her writing so much. Excellent. That is a well-used copy that you have there. Yeah, that's from our library. They have a really nice group of her books there. Mm, Nice. Well, I know when you posted on social media about her, several listeners mentioned that they love her books as well. So she has a following for sure. For sure. What a loss too that she died so young. So Biblio Adventures... Well, I had a couple. We went on one together. Let's talk about that one first, because that was super fun. Oh, my God. So much fun to get in a car together and drive, like spend a whole day just knowing we're going to be together. Yes. It hasn't happened in a long time. It was great. So nice. So Chris has been spending a lot of time up in Massachusetts at Mount Holyoke. She's talked about that on the podcast. Yes. And so, you know, I've been asking classmates about great used bookstores in the area. And so I've been hitting them pretty regularly. And then... One of my new friends texted me and he said, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't think about this one, but have you been to the Montague Book Mill? He's like, it's great. It's just about 30 minutes from campus. So I looked it up and that was in the list of the best New England bookstores that we had posted this summer from a source. I am sorry, I don't remember. Tiny Trips. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. So I told Emily, I was like, we have to go. It was a lovely rainy-ish fall day. The leaves were in peak. Mm-hmm. So it was a great drive. And then the mill itself, it, it was an actual mill from the mid 19th century that was turned into a bookstore not all that long ago, a couple decades. Yeah. I mean, it had been a grist mill, you know, grinding wheat. And then it was some sort of, they stamped 
Oh, yeah. It was industrial stamping where they stamped metal objects with serial numbers and whatnot. And then it became a bookstore. It's not just a bookstore. There's a cafe there. And then in the other parts of the building, there's a record store, uh, art store, and another restaurant, which we didn't even get to any of that. I know that doesn't shock anybody. (laughs) We spend all our time in the bookstore. But what uh, it's uh, so well curated and organized. Yes, very well organized. And a lot of people there, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people were hanging out, studying, reading. You could tell college age type folks. And then there were just a lot of people browsing and buying. It's right along a river because, you know, it was a mill that used water power. And it was very dry. It wasn't moist at all inside. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, great. Obviously, they knew how to build river mills back then so that they would stay dry Mm -hmm. and oh my god i found a couple treasures and just it's really nice to go to a used bookstore where they take care of their stock Mm -hmm. yeah and things were alphabetized yeah (laughs) which i really appreciate too (laughs) i mean you know i always go looking for certain things but then never you know always happy to take home whatever yeah i find i wanted to try to remember What's their tagline again? It's on, I, I oh, put yeah. the sticker. Books you don't need in a place you can't find. <laughs> now, we don't believe in the books you don't need. Yes, I know. And we found it just fine. Yeah. Chris did all the driving. Thank you, Chris. And I had to look at the map when I got home, like, where were we exactly? Because I think we were pretty close to the New Hampshire border. So you do kind of feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but it would certainly be a fun trip if you're in New England to factor this one in beautiful and the cafe had really lovely food as well as i said we didn't get to the restaurant but yeah we will be back we will for sure i mean that's going to be a regular location i think i found a first edition hardcover copy of a scott berg's biography on max perkins an editor of genius which i love that book and i have this rancid old mass market (laughs) copy that i found at a goodwill store or some secondhand shop years ago. So I couldn't believe it. It's in pristine condition. Yeah, she was very happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so cool. I don't think I've ever even seen a first edition. I mean, I know I never have because I would have bought it. But Was it sitting out? Like, because we had separated at that point. Was it like in a cabinet or something? Or was it? No, just it was just on the shelf. It was mm. in the, um. There they had like a literary section near the writing section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's what we usually do when we hit a bookstore together. We ooh and ah initially, and then we set a time to meet, right. like a half hour, hour, and then we can regroup and decide how much more time we need at that point. And also look at each other's stacks and go, okay, let me have a moment with myself and decide how many of these I should take home. <laughs> I know. I told myself I was going to buy one, but I bought four. It happens. Yeah, I didn't give myself any guidelines, but I I wanted something. I mean, I'm to the point now where like, if you're going to bring another book into this house, it's got to be one you're going to read. Well, one of them I bought, I did buy is kind of a reference book. It's one I'd read before, Nina Baim's book about 19th century women writers, which I'd read a zillion years ago and no longer had a copy. So I'd like to have that on my shelves just to look at. Do you see how we start justifying our purchases? You can buy any books you want, Chris. Of course. <laughs> I think I think that the justification and then the, what is it, Jenga or Janga? The game where you have to oh, fit yeah, things. To, like, to and move then, books around. Yeah, when yeah. you get home with new books. Yeah. Although I don't put books in my bookshelf immediately when I get home with new books. I could usually have them in a little stack. 
Because like right now I have this big ass stack of all the used books I've purchased recently from these bookstores I've been going to. So what do you do? Right now they're on my coffee table. Well, I bought one for the gentleman caller, Chris's recommendation, and he took it home with him. So that one did leave my house. (laughs) (laughs) But I bought one, an Anne Lamott. And I haven't read her in a long time. I left it out on the coffee table to read it. You know, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, right. Cool. Yeah. Well, the other Biblia adventures I had, the Willa Cather Book Club did meet at the Wood Memorial Library Museum in South Windsor. We discussed Cather's first novel, Alexander's Bridge. It was such a gorgeous day. We met outside. We are having such a beautiful fall. Yeah. So beautiful. It was a really wonderful conversation. And to see everybody, a couple regulars couldn't make it. Some people are still on the advice of their doctors not going out publicly. So we miss them, but it was great to be together. And our next meeting will be in January when we discuss O Pioneers, which is one of my favorites. It's the first Cather novel I ever read. And that will be our last Cather novel. Mm. So after January, we're going to morph into some other type of book club. And I know you've been talking about who to read. Have you come up to a decision on that? We haven't. We're all still thinking about it. But John Steinbeck is kind of in the lead at this point. Oh, my God, that makes me so excited. I will join that. (laughs) Not that I shouldn't have joined the Cather Club, but I just haven't. I I just don't have enough time to read. Yeah, well, what we're going to do is we're not going to read all of his novels. We're going to pick four. And, you know, do it for 2022, 2023. Well, that's a good idea. Because, you know, we meet quarterly. Yeah. Then this way we'll get a taste. It seems like most of the members have read at least one of his. And we all haven't read the same one. Mm -hmm. And others have read a handful of his. And who knows, if we really enjoy reading him as a group, we could continue on. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. Um, Cindy from Book Club on the Go and The Wood, they support us as a group. It doesn't matter what we read. Our meeting in January, we'll be back at the Red Heat Tavern in South Windsor. We're going to have a little bit of a holiday gathering because it has a big room that seats like 30 people that's reservable. And since there's usually like seven to 12 of us, that'll be good for social distancing and everything. And that book club is open for new members. Absolutely. Yeah, we totally welcome any and all who'd like to come. Even if you haven't read the book, but you're just curious about Cather or that particular novel, you're welcome to join us. So shoot us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com. Right on. So the other Biblio adventure I just want to talk about really briefly was Out of the Archives, The Queer History of Dracula. And that was an event with the History Project out of Boston by Ranger Megan Mitchell, She doesn't work at the History Project. She works at the Longfellow House, which is, quote, very gay. (laughs) Apparently, there's a a lot of queer associations there, which I look forward to looking into. But she's a big vampire fan, Stoker fan. And I knew some of the things that she talked about in her presentation. And then there was a very wonderful Q&A discussion afterwards. But Bram Stoker wrote letters to Walt Whitman, in the 1870s. And Whitman's Leaves of Grass at this time was like the gay man's Bible. It was very queer poetry, coded a lot. Um, But most young men who were gay exploring their sexuality and were literary were attracted to Whitman. And so Bram Stoker wrote a letter to Whitman in 1872 that he didn't send until he finished the letter in 1876 and mailed it to Whitman. And he thanked him for writing 
the poetry that he wrote and for writing about, quote, my kind. Mm. So it seems like a coming out statement because he also says, I can't really talk to you about things that I would put in writing. I hope we meet someday. So did they ever meet? They did. They met much later. But in the meantime, Bram Stoker's a really good friend who he'd known for decades, and they were good enough friends to like spend Christmas together with, and they had both courted the same woman for a while. And then even after Bram Stoker married the woman, they were still friends. They all three would go out together. When Oscar Wilde was put on trial for immorality for his, quote, homosexual behavior, Bram Stoker was one of the people in his life who turned his back on Oscar Wilde. Now, on the other hand, Bram Stoker's boss, Irving, the actor who he worked for, he was his manager. He was a friend as well of Wilde's. Irving actually supported Oscar Wilde publicly. So it makes me wonder, like, God, what was that relationship like? After Bram Stoker turns his back and Irving doesn't, he offers support. So as the years went by, Bram Stoker got even more homophobic. He was married to a woman, which is, you know, kind of standard. We've talked about that before in the podcast at different historical periods. Marriage meant different things. Mm -hmm. He got so homophobic to the point that in 1912, he basically wrote an essay saying that all homosexual writers in England should be imprisoned. Wow. Yeah. That's a strong statement. Yeah. That's some serious internalized homophobia. But there was so much going on during these decades with the sexologists coming along and saying what is, quote, normal and what is wrong and societal standards. So it's just a really sad situation. One of the things that Megan talked about, it was really interesting. She looked at the drafts of Dracula. Dracula was published in 1897, but the first draft is from around 1890. And there's a line for those of you who know Dracula, where Jonathan Harker is in Dracula's castle and Dracula's told him not to go into certain areas. He does anyway. And Dracula's, quote, brides, these three vampire women approach him. And he is really turned on by the idea of being penetrated by them. And one of them gets so close that, you know, he feels her breath on his neck and everything. And then Dracula comes in and he says, this man belongs to me. In the first draft, the line is, this man belongs to me, I want him. And then in the published version, the line is, this man belongs to me, yes, I too can love. Hmm. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I have to look back at that. And Who is he saying that to? Yes, I too can love. Is he saying that about he has these women in the castle that live there? Or I don't know, I'll have to look into it. But I just thought that issue of Bram Stoker's struggle with his sexuality was quite interesting yeah because i've never read a biography on stoker i know i tried one once and it seemed too like psycho babbly for me do you have any upcoming jaunts scheduled well i have another one with you yes you do when we hang up when we (laughs) hang up (laughs) when we push the stop recording button yes and clean up the office before we leave we're heading out the door to go to a new haven bookstore called people get ready which is where we ordered copies of our read-along book which we're super excited to dig into i know why the caged bird sings by Maya Angelou. Yes. Yes. So people get ready. They opened a couple years ago, I think just before the pandemic, maybe. I don't really remember. 
but they're African-American owned and we want to go there and have a good browse, but unfortunately they're not open for browsing right now because they have a leak problem, a ceiling leak that they're dealing with. Right. So we're going to go because we ordered our books from them and she said, it's really dangerous. We can't let you in right now. We might see about that, but <laughs> no. we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess mean, they have- Maybe a- they've had time to fix it because that did happen last week, but yeah. it doesn't sound like that was going to happen. So right. anyway, we'll report back. Yeah, and they have a nice pickup system right now where they put books that have been ordered that people are coming to pick up in a mailbox so yeah. you can safely access them. What about you, Upcoming Johns? Well, I just learned about this Write America series, which is a new author series spearheaded by the writer Roger Rosenblatt. And it features award-winning, nationally renowned authors and new and emerging writers in reading and conversation each week about how books and art might bridge the deep divisions in our nation. Hmm. Their conversations are being streamed on Bird's Books Crowdcast channel, and that's spelled B-Y-R-D, by the way, Bird's Books. They have it scheduled out all the way through April of 22. Hmm. It's every week they have these conversations. Now, Roger Rosenblatt, he's written quite a few books, but he wrote a memoir called Making Toast, that I adored. And it was about his 30 something year old daughter was on her treadmill running and had cardiac arrest and died completely unexpectedly leaving behind three children, his grandchildren. And he and his wife moved in with their son-in-law to help just in this incredibly shocking time, help him carry on the household And Roger Rosenblatt said to himself, the first thing I'm going to do is just find out how my grandkids like to take their toast in the morning, which is where the title comes from, Making Toast. Of course, it grows and develops from there, but it's such a beautifully written book. So he's spearheading this whole venture. So just to give you an example, Emma Walton Hamilton and Hilma Wolitzer were on October 11th, coming up in... January is a special event with Gary Trudeau and Jules Pfeiffer in conversation about the art of cartooning. I mean, come on, talk about that affecting how the nation looks through cartooning, I can only imagine. So I'll put a link in the show notes because what I like about this is it feels overwhelming at first when you look at it, but then when you realize that they're all being recorded, you can watch them at your leisure. So Again, it's called Write America, a Reading for Our Country. That sounds really good. Yeah. I'm excited to have found that. So what about upcoming reads? I have two. Our buddy Jenny over at Reading MV, I think a couple episodes ago, I talked about the author Sarah Addison Allen, who I'd never heard of, but was compared to Alice Hoffman, which perked up my eyebrows. She emailed us and she said, oh, I think you'd really like her. And she compared her to Alice Hoffman and Joanne Harris. For those of you who don't know, I love Joanne Harris also. She wrote Chocolat and Five Quarters of an Orange and I mean, just all sorts of books. So I wrote back to Jenny because there are a lot of novels. Sarah Addison Allen's written a lot. And I said, is there one you'd recommend I start with? And she recommended Garden Spells. So I went out to the library and got an e-copy. So I'll be starting that soon. And then we also got here at Book Cougars headquarters, 
I requested a copy of this book, Chouette's by Claire Oshetsky. Oh, that's a great cover. Unbelievable cover. It's got an owl. It's just a beautiful cover. I think I'm going to make it our book mail Monday. For those of you on social media, this will be posted around on Monday because it comes out on November 16th. I'm going to just read you Ruman Alams, who's the author of Leave the World Behind, his blurb on the back. Claire Oshetsky's novel is a marvel. It's language a joy. It's imagination dizzying. Every time I thought I had cracked Chouette's central metaphor, aha, it's about motherhood. No marriage, no music. The book flew out of my grasp like a wary bird. It's a truly exhilarating read. So it is supposedly about all those things he just said, you know, motherhood and things like that. But it is about an owl. I don't know if a person birthed an owl. I don't know. It says, Tiny is pregnant. Her husband is delighted. You think this baby is going to be like you, but it's not like you at all, she warns him. This baby is an owl baby. There you go. All right. I mean, that cover is like frameable. It's, it's so beautiful. Stunning. So striking. Yes. And we have an owl in our neighborhood that we hear at night. So when I saw this cover too, it just made me think about that. There were two the other night that were going. Mm-hmm. Like they were putting on a concert, the two mm-hmm. of them. And I mean, I don't know if they're doing more things than just hooting, but I was just Ooh. like, oh my gosh. I was, like, You've been reading a lot of Dracula. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Well, I was laying on the couch reading <laughs> Vampires of Hollywood, and I just, I had to put my book down because they were just cracking me up. Yeah. They have been very verbal. Yes. Very. Hooty. <laughs> what about you? I have two books. I have one that's actually a short story, The Old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskell. A Ghost Story for Christmas. Now, this is illustrated by a man who just goes by Seth, who is a Canadian cartoonist who also does drawings. Um, They have appeared in places like the New York Times, the Best American Comics, the Walrus, the New Yorker, and so on. This is part of a series, a Ghost Story for Christmas series, that is honoring the Victorian tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas. How fun. Yeah. I don't know anything at all about this story. My book club, we have a member who moved back to Canada. And so we keep in touch with her. And like we Skyped in with her for a while at the beginning of our book club last week. And she sent this to us to pass around and read with a little note about the Victorian tradition of doing that. And we'll put a link to the show notes for this series, A Ghost Story for Christmas, Because they have a bunch out. They've been doing it for several years. They release three titles a year. There's some famous names and some that are maybe not as well known to people. In this collection coming out this year, one is by Edith Wharton, who I know. And then the other book I'm going to be reading, I have to thank Karen, one of our listeners who I'm connected with on social media too. Barker for Books is her handle on Twitter and Instagram. She forwarded an article about a novel called The Beetle by Richard Marsh. And this also came out in 1897, the same year Dracula came out. It was more popular than Dracula. Oh. Yeah, huge seller. And have you ever heard of it? I didn't. I had oh, not heard go of it. Karen. I know. So I have a library copy here, and it looks really good. I think I'm in crunch time for school right now, so this will probably be something I read between semesters, and I'm going to get my own copy. I can't wait. 
Yeah, we'll see about that. She's going to be reading it this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) But this is also part of a series. It's the Haunted Library of Horror Classics series that's put out by the Horror Writers Association and Poisoned Pen, which is an imprint of source books. And they have several titles going. One of them that they're working on right now is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. So I thought that was kind of cool. Excellent. Yeah. It's kind of a chunkster. It is. It's got Um, a great cover. We've got these animal covers going on. I know. It's a red cover with white print and a black beetle. Hmm. And what's kind of neat is at the end, they have questions for classroom discussion. And one of the questions is that it's considered uh, one of the most popular horror novels of its time in the late 1800s, outselling Dracula in the first few years after publication. Yet today, most know the story of Dracula, while only a few have read The Beetle. Why do you think that is? What makes one book more celebrated and enduring than another? And that's another reason why I want to take my time reading this, because I am going to have both in mind, I think, and thinking about that question. Like, I'm always fascinated by why does one book get carried along through the decades as something that people read, not just in the classroom, but for pleasure, and others just completely fall off radar. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah, Especially so, when they were po- so popular to start. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah so thanks, Karen. I'm going to enjoy that. So reminder to everybody, we're running out now to go get our copy of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Our read-along Zoom discussion is on Sunday, December 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Still spots available. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. And there's conversation going on, our Goodreads page that's dedicated to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, if you'd like to conversate with us that way. We would love it. We'll be talking about it on a later episode in December. So also, just if you have any questions or comments, you can always email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. We're really looking forward to reading it. I'm also going to listen to it. Maya Angelou narrates, so it'd be fun to have her voice in my head as I read it as well. For sure. And now coming up next is our conversation with Jung Yoon, author of the forthcoming, well, it's not forthcoming, it's coming out today if you're listening to this on November 9th. Oh, Beautiful is the title of her new novel. We both love this novel. Buy it for yourself, buy it for your friends. If you're not going to buy a copy, recommend it to your library. That really does help. Yeah, absolutely does. It's such a powerful book. Yeah, and we just love talking with her, so enjoy. We're so thrilled to welcome back author Jung Yun. Jung was our guest on episode 104, where our conversation centered around her first novel, Shelter. Today, we're celebrating the release of Jung's highly anticipated second novel, Oh, Beautiful, which publishes on November 9th. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be back with the Book Cougars. My name is Jung Yun, and I am a novelist and a teacher of writing. My first book, which I talked about on your podcast, uh, was Shelter, which came out in 2016. And my latest book is called Oh, Beautiful, uh, which pubs on November 9th from St. Martin's. And I'm really excited to be here and talk with you all. Yeah, we're so happy to have you back. We have been chomping at the bit. Well, first, to read your second novel, so excited that we were fortunate enough to get advanced reader copies and to be sitting here talking with you again is just such a pleasure. So thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. I'm so happy to be here with you. Can we start off by asking you to to give the listeners a bit of an elevator pitch on what Oh Beautiful is about? 
Absolutely. I'm giggling a little bit because it's such a hard thing to do <laughs> in a succinct way. And I feel like I'm always really bad at it. But here, here's my elevator pitch. Um, oh, Beautiful is about a woman in her in her 40s. She's biracial Korean American. And for a period of time in her life, she was a catalog model. So not one of those really famous models um, that everyone knows, but someone who made her living by uh, posing for pictures. And now that she's in her 40s, she's reinventing herself as a writer. Um, she's new, she's green. And by a stroke of what feels like luck, um, she is given an opportunity to go back to her home state of North Dakota in the year 2012 to write about the oil boom, which is happening on the western part of that state and really transforming uh, small towns and small communities. And she goes back and finds this landscape that she has a really mixed history with and some mixed feelings about uh, completely transformed by tens of thousands of oil workers who are in the area trying to make their fortune in oil. Um, so that is the basic setup for the book. And I'll just leave the rest to our conversation. Great. You know, Chris and I have been reflecting a lot on the history of the book Cougars because we've been going at this for five years. And I was thinking about one of the first author events we went to. The person moderating the event started by looking at the author and just giving a huge sigh. <laughs> and Chris and I kind of looked at each other like, really? That's what you've got? But I'm so tempted to do that here today because this book, oh my gosh, I mean, it's so good. It does make me want to sigh, but I'm not going to. An enthusiastic sigh. <laughs> An enthusiastic say, sigh, yes. right. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I almost don't know what to say. But what I do want to ask you, we'll get deeper into the details of the book, but is this the book you set out to write when you sat down? Because there's so much to it on so many different levels. It is absolutely not the book that I sat down to write, Emily. It was this idea that started a long time ago. I knew that I always wanted to write about my home state of North Dakota. That's where I grew up from the age of four to 18. I was always looking for an entry point to write an entire novel. And the oil boom just seemed like that door when it finally opened. Originally, when I started out, I had this idea that I would structure it as a novel told in short stories. I had written eight chapters, eight different short stories about different characters uh, uh, before I finally discovered Eleanor. And those first seven short stories were about mostly men, men who were from the area, men who were coming to the area looking for work. And writing every single one of them was like walking through wind, through mud, through crowds. It was just a slog in every way possible. You would think that after one novel, I would get smart and sort of recognize my own internal signals that something isn't going right. And I'm not really fully committing to this work emotionally or intellectually. But I just kept at it <laughs> because I didn't know what else to do. I was so far in. I was like 200 pages into this structure. And then I discovered... I just started writing about um, Eleanor as this woman who comes back to her home state and by virtue of her assignment, she has to talk to people and seek them out and put herself into really uncomfortable situations. Suddenly the entire sort of story kind of opened up and I didn't feel like I was walking through mud, wind, rain anymore. So structurally it was not. Uh, the oil boom was always part of the original premise but Eleanor was really a latecomer. And once I found her as that lens for the novel, it felt like a very different novel and it really opened up. Wow, that is so amazing because Eleanor is such a strong 
vivid character. So for her to walk onto the scene late in the game is just so (laughs) tremendous. I could see how she probably flipped everything or just really injected so much different energy into it. She really did. And for people who are listening, who are writers, you just know when you have energy that comes to your writing, when the words flow a little more naturally and easily, like that's a a sign to pay attention to. I remember I was at a a writer's colony when this, when this all sort of happened and her story came out so easily in a way that I hadn't experienced during any of those first seven. So at least by that point, I was smart enough to listen. (laughs) It took a while. It took a long while. Wow. Great. If, If I can ask one more question about the origin of the story, when we were talking with you about shelter, you had mentioned that sometimes stories come to you as an image. Like for shelter, it was an image of a man standing in front of his kitchen sink, I believe, looking Mm -hmm. out the window. Did anything like that happen with this story? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. What is funny is that my parents lived in North Dakota up until just a few years ago. They relocated out of the state. So I would go home every year, once or twice a year. And my parents used to live on the eastern side of North Dakota. This novel is set in a fictional town on the western side. The part of me that is still a Midwestern girl loves to drive and loves to drive on like these open country roads, but there's just nothing like you could, you can go 90 miles an hour, not pass a car for a long time. And I just love how peaceful that feels to me. So one of my favorite things to do when I used to go home is to drive to the Western part of the state um, to go to the Badlands, which does appear in this book. So It wasn't a single image, I would say, that I thought of. It was this concept of an oil boom changing communities really kind of overnight, it felt like. But for me, like I was always going back and forth to the point where I felt like I was seeing the oil boom happen in stop motion photography. Like I could remember when there was a big box store there and a hotel there and a man camp there because I was seeing the place change by these once or twice a year visits So my images are much more fractured because of the way in which I experienced the boom as an outsider from a distance, but going back to my home state and seeing it change over time. But yeah, no single image this time, Chris. (laughs) No, that's that's cool. Thank you so much because I just have to say like your opening. Mm. Oh God, you know. Here's the Um, sigh. I mean, much like shelter, like it's just like, bam, you're in the story. Oh, man. And um, yeah, and you use the word fractured. And that's exactly what's happening to a lot of these people's lives, people who are coming and people who've been there for generations and now have oil rigs and horizontal drilling, fracking going on on their land. And and what that cost is truly, um, it's just really a big, huge fracture in so many different directions. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was the notion of land and surface rights. Since we're talking about fracturing, (laughs) I'm just going to read a little quote here from the book. In North Dakota, people can sever the surface rights from the mineral rights on their property, meaning that someone can own the land and the right to use it for farming or grazing or whatever they like, while someone else can own the right to everything below the surface. 
So this is a real issue in the book. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, that is a real situation in existence in North Dakota that allowed the boom to happen, which is that people who were farming and struggling to farm because it's a really hard industry these days to make a good living at unless you're doing like industrial scale farming. They were looking for ways of keeping their farms afloat and keeping their farms in the family. So these mineral rights for a while, the fact that they were worthless for a long time and suddenly became this sort of lucrative thing that one could trade in, it felt like you were trading air, right? You, it felt like it wasn't like a real thing. But then people got involved in these types of deals where you could basically enter into an agreement with an oil company that may drill on your land or may not. It depends because you need to have sort of a connecting set of properties in order to make some of this really expensive work profitable and feasible for these oil companies. So people thought that they were selling paper and then realizing that, oh, some of these oil companies really are going to drill on our land. They are really going to extract oil from our land. And some people made a lot of money. And some people really got taken for a ride. And it it was like a range of different experiences with the experience and the inexperience, sometimes working with companies that were on the level and sometimes with companies that were nickel and diming everything in the process so that the actual royalties, once they did drill for oil and hit oil, were so diminished by all these little charges that they would take out. So it was a really wide range of experiences. Some people legitimately did well leasing their mineral rights to oil companies and having oil extracted from their from their property. And some people got a lot of traffic and tension and pollution and noise and messed up water and not that much money in their pocket as a result. So it's a really wide range of experiences. Yeah, there's one character in particular who really, you really feel for her and her situation. And oh, what's yeah. happened. Amy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's a great Amy. character. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. She's a pretty complicated character, too. She's she's pretty angry. Mm-hmm. But you know, in many ways, she's she's one of the people who got taken for a ride, and she has lots of reasons to be angry. She just uh, projects it in in different ways. <laughs> yeah, well, and understandably too, because her husband sold the rights on his deathbed. Yeah, and she wasn't in on that decision, I don't mm-hmm. think, and didn't understand what could happen. So, yeah, understandably anger. Yeah, and that's exactly. an example of the book that the layers, to me, there's so many layers to this book. And I don't mean that as a pun, because we're also talking about the ground and all of that. But <laughs> characters that have so many deep layers. And Eleanor, of course, being the number one character, she comes into contact with so many people as she's traveling through this area in North Dakota, and then is discovering herself as she goes. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the men in the book. There are a lot of different men, (laughs) but let's talk about Harold Olaf Burgum III. Mm -hmm. I love it. You say he has several nicknames, unofficial mayor of Avery, king of Avery, or Harry. Eleanor's description, if I could just read this, I know it's weird probably to you when someone's reading your book to you. Not at all. (laughs) He belongs to a generation of men who still think it's charming to comment on a woman's appearance. She's never sure what to do about people like him, people who seem reasonably well-meaning, but whose understanding of the rules is so different from her own. Talk to us about the men in the book. 
Sure. Harry, by the way, was the first short story when it was a novel and short stories. And a lot of that original story was the diner scene. So I do, I still have affection for Harry just because he was the person who I kind of spent the longest period of time with trying to muddle my way through what the book was going to be. Harry is an older man And I'm sure you and others who might be listening have had this experience where you meet someone and they compliment the way that you look, or they say something that just feels off. And I often find for myself, I'm kind of dealing with the desire to say, did you just hear what you said? And then the desire to just not make it an issue and move on with my day, right? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, it really depends. But Harry is meant to be sort of older and innocuous in his age and the fact that he does something that she's able to kind of ignore because she's an ignorer right she she sees issues Eleanor and sometimes often doesn't want to deal with them but the men in this novel represent a huge range of older seemingly harmless and going all the way through the spectrum to pretty harmful, pretty poorly intentioned, pretty misogynistic, pretty this, that, and the other. And she meets a whole cast of men and has different interactions with them and finds herself really struggling with these strangers, right? Who react to her in various ways that are upsetting, sort of triggering They make her reflect about the way that she used to be as a younger woman who was always interested in that kind of male attention. Part of the reason why I wanted to put Eleanor, who's a very attractive woman, into this place that is overrun by men is that I was playing with a sense of extremes. What happens when you can't disappear, right? When you can't be invisible, when every single person notices you, notices you for different reasons, and then you have to interact with the fallout from all of that. So a really wide range of men trying to create a sense of being surrounded um, and not being able to get away and uh, not being able to blend in, which is what Eleanor has always wanted to do, which is just blend in quietly and escape notice, but absolutely impossible in this environment. Yeah, for sure it is, Um, just from her gender and then from her Korean heritage as well. I did a lot of highlighting in the book, and one of the sentences I want to read deals with another man that she was involved with, and it's just such a loaded sentence in so many ways. Richard liked oral sex. He liked it in his office under a long wooden writing desk that had supposedly belonged to Joseph Pulitzer. I mean, I cracked up when I read that sentence. And then it's a sentence that I read again and thought about because it is so loaded and it says so much about relationships and power and writing and being a man and who's giving and receiving this oral sex. So you are such a complex writer. I mean, just at the sentence level let alone looking at a character as a whole within a book. And I'm in awe of your talent. That is so nice. Thank you. What a sentence to highlight, by the way. (laughs) Just waiting for my mother-in-law to read that. (laughs) Well, you you read about that in a book. That's all. (laughs) I was just going to say, uh, for your listeners, uh, Richard is the professor that 
Eleanor studied with, he, they became romantically involved and he was the person who passed on this article and this extraordinary opportunity at the sort of New Yorker like magazine to her to go back to the Bakken. Richard is white, older, extremely well established, upper middle class and educated. You know, part of what I wanted to explore and think about in this novel as well is how the person who's telling the story changes the story. Like he had a very cut and dry outline of who he was going to talk to and how he was going to approach the story. And if he had gone there uh, and done all those things, the end result, the end article that is supposed to be worked on uh, would just be a reflection of who he is as a person. Eleanor tries to pick up the ball, but realizes that she really needs to make this story her own. And a lot of the novel follows her through that process of figuring out, like, what is the story? But, yeah, that's who Richard is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that that line, again, I can't wait for my mother-in-law to read it. <laughs> She's a minister's wife, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> Well, yeah, Richard is not one of the more endearing characters. You mentioned when you were just talking about fitting in and being invisible, being seen when you wanted to be, but then not when you don't want to be. And I'd like to read another paragraph. So this is uh, from later on in the book. It's chapter 25. For 18 years, she lived in North Dakota, surrounded by white people who didn't think she was white. Then she moved to New York, where the Asians she met didn't accept her as Asian, disconnected as she was from that part of her identity. Apparently, she was just enough of both to qualify as neither. Her outsider perspective and her outsider-insider, she's both, comparing to Richard, who would be an outsider for North Dakota, but an insider for the male culture that's predominating. Can you talk a little bit about these, the insider-outsider or is that a kind of a redundant question? No, it's not redundant at all. You know, Richard also sort of fits into a largely white community. He could go to North Dakota and sort of blend in in a way that Eleanor can't. And part of the reason why I wanted her to have this childhood and adolescence that was spent in North Dakota is that these are this outsider insider business. They're the same issues that she had when she was younger. They're the same issues that essentially tore her family apart because her mother, who was um, the Korean side of her parental lines, her mother couldn't stand it or take it there either. She was always her mother made to feel like an outsider within her community to the point where she, by virtue of being in a marriage that, that wasn't, particularly loving to begin with. She chose to leave. So Eleanor's background plays into this as well, because she has constantly had sort of one foot or one sort of claim into these communities, but by virtue of being of mixed race, never really fit into any of them. And she carries a lot of that pain and that hurt and the anger of never feeling like she belongs anywhere along with her. And that further puts her on the outside of every sort of community that she could potentially fit into. So there's a scene later on in the novel where she's interacting with all of these women and interviewing them at a truck stop. And this is unfamiliar to her. Like she doesn't relate to women very well either, doesn't relate to Asian Americans who never really saw her as Asian American or particularly proud of her culture. So there are all these communities that she could have fit into, but for various reasons didn't. So she is very much like a a ball of sort of nerves and she has sharp pointed elbows and kind of like walks around life with them jabbing outward 
not allowing anyone to get particularly close to her. Yeah, even as a child, there's there's that one scene where uh, there's a Native American element in the story, Native American characters. And when she was a child and people were making fun of the Native American kids, she kind of joined in. Because, Absolutely. you know, that the pressure was off of her. She's probably trying to fit in. She was modeling the behavior that had been directed at her, and she was relieved, quite frankly, to not be the object of that ridicule, object of that bullying. But again, that's something that happens as she gets older. She sort of passes on the pain that people have given to her and sort of spreads it around to other people without really thinking about it. You know, she's in her 40s now, and I think having this experience really requires a lot of reflection about her own complicity in the past and thinking about not only what has been done to her, but what she has done to others. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And her yeah. continued mistakes and missteps that she's making along the way that really made me <laughs> feel for her and also want to say, wake up, Eleanor. You I know, know. Yeah. I, know. I really love her, though. Yeah, well, I was saying also just she's such a human character. So I have a question about the ending. <laughs> and it's always hard to talk about endings. But I mean, I gasped when I read the ending. It's just (laughs) so beautiful. And it took, when we've talked about it on the podcast already, and it took all of my everything (laughs) to not read it because I'm like, people, this is what you have to know. But (laughs) one of the things that I came away, you know, just as we're talking about Eleanor, she's on her own journey of self-discovery, particularly, I think that happens even more when you go back to your hometown as an adult, right? Absolutely. But there's a real thread of forgiveness at the end that I felt really strongly Did you know that you were going to head in that direction or did that surprise you? That really did surprise me. I don't plan anything. I think I mentioned that when we were talking about shelter, I don't outline anything. I kind of have general concepts and ideas and, and maybe a small handful of plot points in my head when I start, but I will quickly abandon them if I feel like a character has developed beyond the believability of a particular plot point. So I was writing the novel and even halfway through, I wasn't exactly sure how the book would finally land, but it eventually pulled together and it seemed so obvious to me as I was nearing the end that she would go back to a place that meant something to her, a place that really had an emotional connection to her and her family's past. And that would be the starting point for, I'm trying not to, (laughs) I'm trying to talk about this very carefully to (laughs) avoid any spoilers, but um, that that would be a place of reimagining a different kind of story and a different beginning. At a certain point, you have to, I think, forgive yourself for the things that you have done and make an effort to live differently. And I think that there is an element of that in the gesture that happens at the end of the book. Yeah. I'm struggling here. No, that was, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's really true. And it, I mean, it is hard, you know, really, we would just want to say to everyone, just go get the book and read yeah. it. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> you have to read it. But it is one that Chris and I talk a lot about. It is hard to talk about a book because the experience of reading it and the unfolding is just, it's something you can never relive. So we don't want to give it away. You know? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. I love that in shelf awareness, when they interview authors, there's always that question, is there a book, if you could read it again for the first time, what would it be? And that's how I feel about this book that, you know, oh, I want, I want so people nice. to be able to have that experience without us ruining it for them. So <laughs> you, you did a great job being cagey about the ending. Yeah, <laughs> very cagey, right? <laughs> 
what do you think the reception of this book will be in North Dakota? You know, um, I chatted with an NPR affiliate at, at Prairie Public Radio in North Dakota. Oddly, that was the radio station that I listened to when I would drive to high school. It's pretty amazing. Um, so it was great to have that conversation. And they asked a sort of similar question about whether I was worried that people would be mad. My answer to her question and yours is very similar. I, I am a little bit worried that people will feel like I'm taking a very critical sort of swipe at the state. I hope that what comes through is that Avery, which is this fictional small town in North Dakota, is a stand-in for something that is much larger. I feel like what's happening in the novel is an extension of something that we're seeing across the country, which is a lot of tension and a lot of strife around race, around gender, class, local economies. And it's not meant to be a criticism of North Dakota. I also know that as a writer, that whenever I am fearful of writing something, that is a clear indicator that I should probably write the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're glad you did. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> we are. I mean, your writing is very, it can be very dark and violent and harsh, but there's also such a sense of compassion within it as well. And I ended up feeling compassion for just about all of the characters at one point or another in this novel. And I think, I'm not from North Dakota, but I felt like it was almost a tribute to what the people there are going through and where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I really wanted to avoid the appearance of any like heroes in white hats or villains in black hats and try to avoid those polar ends and and work within the middle because I feel like you can have good and complicated people and bad and complicated people and trying to render these fictional characters who are multidimensional, whose anger, if that's something that's defining about them, whose anger has a source and a place and and a way of understanding where it comes from. But also there are people who are in the local economy, they're trying to make money, they hate it there, they want to get out. And they're essentially destroying the environment in the process of the work that they do and not really thinking about it or caring about it because they just want to go home and, and pay off their mortgage. But there's kindness there too. Eleanor meets people who are living in a parking lot and they're some of the kindest people that she has met, but they're also kind of complex as well. So I think that by making her a journalist, she has this opportunity to seek out people from all sort of walks of life, something that I don't necessarily feel like I do enough of. I feel like I'm very sort of cloistered in my particular community. And there's a lot of people who think like me, who have sort of similar backgrounds in terms of education. But here she is just thrown into the mix of people who in her regular life, she'd never talked to, right? She's never voluntarily seek them out, but she absolutely has to here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. It is. Yeah. yeah. And her substance abuse is also an issue. And that really changes as you age. You noticed that, did you? (laughs) That she has a little bit of (laughs) Oh, yeah, I did for sure. And, um, you know, the ending of the book, it made me, you know, Emily talked about it. It had a sense of forgiveness for her. For me, I think about the image of dropping the rock, which is a saying that's used in some 12-step programs about letting go of this stuff you're carrying around. It's probably too much to hope that there's going to be more of Eleanor in your writing future. Correct. I think think I'm going to leave her at that ending spot that you saw her last. Um, 
<laughs> well, wow, Chris, what a, that was quite a snaky little way to get in there and say, is there a part two? <laughs> well, maybe we need to write some Eleanor fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, my God. Well, we both just love the book so much. We wish you tremendous success with the launch. And um, we will be standing by watching and hoping that people read it. We encourage everyone to do so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope people find the book too. There's a lot of really great fiction, as you both well know, um, this fall. So it's a crowded, crowded fiction market right now. But let's see what happens, right? Yes. (laughs) Go forth. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then... Come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, We do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.